of John, chapter 11, verses 1 to 44. Now, a man named Lazarus was ill. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister, Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay ill, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is ill. When he heard this, Jesus said, This illness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed where he was two more days, and then he said to his disciples, Let us go back to Judea. But, Rabbi, they said, a short while ago the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you were going back? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews, who had been with Mary in the house comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, They followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, 
Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more, deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there for four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth round his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. This is God's word. My name is Phil, I'm the Associate Minister here. It would be lovely to meet you afterwards if you're able to, to stay around. Let's pray for God's help as we look at his word together. Our Father God, we cannot live without hope. And our Father, we need more than to understand these words tonight. We need you to enable us to believe them in a way which transforms how we face death and how we live. Father, please would you do that for the glory of your Son, by the power of your Spirit. Amen. The most fundamental fact of human existence is that it ends. That you, me, and everyone else who draws breath on this planet will one day die. Now most of us are first confronted with that brutal reality when we, when we know the death of a loved one. But even if you never know that brutal separation of bereavement on earth, even if you never have to attend the funeral of somebody else, you will have to attend one funeral in your time on earth. Your own. None of us know when that date will be, by and large. It's not an appointment that has a card sent through for us. But be assured, death has an appointment for every single person sat in this room tonight. Every one of us will end up as worm food. That is our destiny. And so gently but firmly, I want to ask you tonight, what is your answer to death? What is your answer? You see, every human needs to have an answer, an explanation, uh, a, a way to find comfort, to make sense of it, because it is the most fundamental fact of your existence. Now, by and large, our culture does everything it can to avoid facing up to death. And did you see the, the brouhaha over the, uh, the adverts on TFL, um, beyond adverts like this one? Uh, the, the, instead of surfboards, those are coffins. And it was deemed offensive and pulled. They, and TFL said, this is too offensive, we can't have it on the underground. Now, I don't, I don't know whether you think it's too offensive or not. What was interesting was, uh, I think we've seen that for long enough. Um, what was interesting was the, what the CEO of Beyond said. He basically said, that is odd. You're allowed to advertise payday loans with extortionate interest rates. You're allowed to advertise addictive gambling sites. 
You're allowed to advertise the most over-sexualized images you can find. But there is a total taboo over anything to do with death. I think he's right. I see it so clearly any time I take a, a funeral, which is where there's no Christian faith in the, in the family. Just the, this conspiracy of silence, basically. A determination to get through the day and to deny the reality of what's happened. Quite often after the funeral, in talking to people at the wake, I'll talk to the family because it's such an important thing. And you, know, you, you chat to an uncle and say, do you, do you ever think about um, yourself and, and what's going to happen to you? No. And people just turn away. No one wants to confront the reality of what's happened. No one wants to think about death. And what this all means is that as a culture, we are probably less well-equipped, less prepared to handle death than any other culture anywhere in history. I think that's probably true. And so we end up clutching at straws. Uh, Someone in the church here, actually they're here tonight, genuinely told me, I'm not worried about death because uh, before I die, I'm going to have my brain removed and implanted into a robot, which was nice. (laughs) Really? That's okay. Uh, And I think that by and large, as a young culture, that's what we do. We we just trivialize it. We tell jokes. I move to a log cabin, we say, tending towards a state of chemical equilibrium, making a long-distance call from the horizontal phone booth. (laughs) Or we sentimentalize it. Much more, if you really have to deal with it, we say they've gone to a better place, don't we? We we pride ourselves on being scientific, rational people in our culture until somebody dies and then we determine what happens afterwards from watching Ghost or from the poem, Death is Nothing at All, as Henry Scott Holland told us in his much misunderstood poem. Death is nothing at all, I've only slipped away into the next room. And then someone you love dies and you realize they're not in the next room. They've gone. That's the horror of death. You know, if you've got a a broken relationship with a family member and they die, you can't sort it out after they're dead because they're gone. The chance has disappeared. The horror of death is its finality. They're not in the next room. They're gone forever. And so we, we either drink ourselves numb or we busy ourselves with work until the pain stops or the questions fade and we can move on with life. But what do you do when you can't distract yourself, when death really presses in? There was an extraordinary article, I thought, um, in The Guardian recently uh, by Melissa Broder entitled Why I Lied to My Therapist. She wrote this. I'd just watched a man die, my boyfriend's stepfather, the first death I'd ever seen up close. Seated on my therapist's avocado green sofa, I told her about my existential terror. She replied to me using words meant to soothe, but I don't recall what she said. All I could hear were my own thoughts. My therapist can't change the fact I'm going to die. She can't even change the fact she's going to die. Compared with death, my therapist is just a crappy pound shop hairbrush. Now, the various religions and philosophies and counseling strategies of the world all have answers to death. They they all seek to give an explanation to help us uh, work out what's happening and come to terms with it. But ultimately, they're completely powerless in the face of death. 
They can't stop it. And the stunning claim at the heart of John 11 is that a man named Jesus Christ stands up next to the tomb of his good friend Lazarus and says, I am the resurrection and the life. He says, in my hands, death is not a full stop, it's just a comma. Trust in me. Now we're at the end of the first half of John's gospel. This is really the climax of it. The last of the miraculous signs. You've had seven miraculous signs. Seven signs uh, pointing to, to Jesus' identity that he is God. Seven pieces of evidence so that we are not foolish if we put our faith in him. So that as uh, John twenty thirty one puts it, that we might have life in his name by believing in him. And this climactic sign declares to us that Jesus has the answer for death. I am the resurrection and the life. It's not Jesus says, look, there's an elixir of life. There there, there is this place you can go where you can find the fountain of life. Uh, And I know the way. He says, no, no, no. I am the resurrection and the life. Life is found in him. When you come to him, when you trust in him, he is life. If, if you think about our life, it's like we're, we are batteries and the, and the life is running out. And Jesus says, I'm mains electricity. Plug into me and you will never die. And tonight I want us to take the opportunity to look at, to examine, to study this awesome claim so that we might have hope in the face of death. You've got four points on the sheet. Uh, Jesus waits to reveal his glory. Jesus comforts differently. He weeps because death is horrible. And he raises Lazarus because he is the resurrection and the life. Uh, Let's get into it. So verse 1, Jesus waits to reveal his glory. Verse 1, now a man named Lazarus was ill. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay ill, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is ill. When he heard this, Jesus said, this illness will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory, so that his son, God's son, may be glorified through it. So a friend of Jesus named Lazarus is ill, and rather wonderfully, Jesus says, I'm going to reveal God's glory by saving Lazarus. Fantastic. Verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard Lazarus was ill, he stayed where he was two more days and then he said to the disciples let's go back to Judea you what that doesn't follow he's ill so ill they've got to send for Jesus and you love him so you sit around watching tv for a couple of days while he dies go figure verse 7 Then they set out. Jesus says, let's go back to Judea. But Rabbi, the disciples respond, a short while ago, the Jews there wanted to stone you and you're going back. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime won't stumble, for they will see by this world's light. It's when a person walks at night, they stumble, for they have no light. After he'd said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. 
but let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest, let's also go that we may die with him. Now, the disciples are frightened Jesus might be killed by the religious authorities in Judea. They've threatened his life. But Jesus wants to reveal that he has power over death. Verse 14 and 15. He wants them to know, to believe that he has the power. You see, if Jesus had gone straight to Lazarus when he was sick, he would have done this amazing thing. Here's a guy lying on his deathbed. Jesus speaks to him and he gets better. And they would have known, wow, Jesus, any sickness, you can raise people up. Whatever people face in this life, you have the answer. But because he waits and waits and Lazarus dies, they'll see that he doesn't just have the answer to sickness. He has the answer to death. They will see God's glory and find in him eternal life. Now, just before we move on, there is a very important lesson, I think, for us in verses 5 to 6. Do you notice that it says... um, Verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so he waited. Jesus doesn't wait because he doesn't love them. Jesus waits because he does love them. Now in a congregation this size, my guess, I don't know what's going on in most of your lives, but my guess is there'll be dozens of people who know the same agony this family knew. They sent a message to Jesus and they waited and they waited and he hasn't seemed to come. Questions about the character of Jesus. Hang on. I know he's powerful. I know he can do stuff. So why isn't he helping me? If he loves me, why hasn't he come? If he loves me, why hasn't he answered my prayer? I don't think our faith is ever so sorely tested as Christians as when Jesus makes us wait. When suffering doesn't go after prayer, when sickness, painful family relationships, loneliness, struggles with a particular besetting sin, lack of husband or wife or children or job. And and we think, look, I know you can deal with this stuff. You're God. You can do anything. And I've prayed to you. And I've asked and nothing. And the wait goes on and on and on. And we learn in John 11 that Jesus waits because he loves us. And we learn in John 11 that when Jesus makes us wait, he has something much, much better planned than the thing we've asked for. We learn in John 11 to trust him. Jesus is wise and Jesus is good even in the waiting. Even when it means someone dies. Secondly, Jesus comforts differently. Now the second detail I think we need to see from this passage is easily missed because it's rather overshadowed by Jesus' stunning claim in verse 25 that he is the resurrection and the life. Uh, But Dick Lucas, who was the the rector over on the other side of the city at St. Helens, the, the church that planted us originally, he pointed out years ago that both Mary and Martha come to Jesus and they say exactly the same thing and Jesus answers them very differently. Uh, Let me show you what's going on. And let me show you why that's good news for us. So verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. 
Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die and whoever lives by believing me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe you are the Messiah, the son of God who is to come into the world. Then verse 28, after she said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who'd been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out. They followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Same words that Martha used. Exactly the same words, but Jesus responds differently. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. I think what you see here is a wonderful comfort to us in grief, which is that Jesus comes to them as individuals and deals with them differently. Jesus doesn't comfort grief in humanity. Jesus comforts Mary and Jesus comforts Martha. And suffering, any of us will know, suffering isolates us. Suffering makes you feel lonely. There is nothing worse, is there, than when you're really going through it and someone, a well-meaning but ill-advised friend says, oh, I know exactly what you're going through. And you want to punch them in the face because they don't. Nobody knows what I'm going through, only me. Nobody knows what you're going through except you. Suffering and grief are individual things. And they isolate us and make us feel lonely. But when Jesus comes to us, he comes as God. And he sees into the depths of our hearts. And he knows perfectly what is going on in your heart. And he knows perfectly how to comfort you in your grief. Whatever you're going through, you can pour out your heart to him in prayer. As a man, he empathizes. He knows what it is to stand at the grave of a much-loved friend. He also knows what it is to die himself. As a man, he empathizes. But as God, as God, he sees into your heart. As God, he knows exactly what you need to know. And he uniquely can comfort you. And then thirdly, Jesus weeps because death is horrible. Come back to to what he says to Mary for a moment. Now, he's just told Martha he's the resurrection and the life. We know that in a few minutes, he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. So how does the resurrection and the life view death? He sees it as horrific. Verse 28, after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary. Now, the teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. Mary got up, went to Jesus. 
Verse 32, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who'd come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. Just two details I want us to see in these verses. Two details about how Jesus interacts with death. The first is the phrase in verse 33, deeply moved in spirit and troubled. It appears again in verse 38 as he approaches the tomb. Jesus once more deeply moved came to the tomb. And it's a hard sort of phrase to translate well and you lose the intensity of it in the English. It means outraged, angry. It's, it's, the, it's the sort of visceral response when you, you flick on the news and you see and you see some horrific tragedy. You see genocide with children's bodies, and you are just, how could, this should not be. He is angry. He is stirred up. He is trembling with rage. And the point is, death is not nothing. The trite cards and the Hollywood movies are lying. Death is horrific. It is brutal. And the Bible is realistic. The Bible gets real life. And so the Bible says death is our final enemy. And Jesus trembles with rage in the presence of death in his creation. And like him, deep down, I guess we, all, we know it just shouldn't be. It shouldn't be here. And I find that so encouraging. We're not being naive and weak if, if we struggle to come to terms with death. When God in human flesh comes and confronts death, he trembles with rage. You ought not to find it easy to reconcile your mind to death. It shouldn't be. It's an unnatural invader. We were designed to live forever with God. Jesus agrees if you feel like that. But secondly, Jesus weeps. The shortest verse in the Bible, Luke 11.35. Two short words, but a great comfort. You've got a God here who creates the vast enormities of the galaxies with a word, just speaks a word and they come to be. Here is a God with that sort of power in his voice. Here is a God who in a moment is going to say, Lazarus, come out and raise the dead man. And yet here is a God who, when he stands at the graveside and sees the weeping brokenness, the impact that death has had on people he loves, well, he's moved to tears and he weeps with them. I wonder if you um, saw the interview a few weeks ago with the Sky News presenter, Colin Brazier. His wife, Jo, died, um, and he felt that he had to speak up before her funeral. And he effectively um, published his invitation to the funeral with this headline, Leave Your Hawaiian Shirt at Home. And in the article, he writes that in our culture, there is a, a pressure to make funerals an upbeat celebration of life with everyone wearing bright colors and being all jolly and listen what he said he says it's unfair on children to insist a funeral should mean rejoicing at a life now past maybe grown-ups can handle that sort of cognitive dissonance but i seriously doubt that children can wearing black gives people a license to get upset to treat a funeral like Ladies Day at Ascot just trivializes death and inhibits the necessary catharsis of the grieving process. As I've said, I think he's right. My own experience in taking funerals is that there is so often 
a desperate desire not to confront the reality of death. To act like it isn't. But I don't think it's just a problem for those who uh, have no Christian faith. I think we Christians get this awfully wrong sometimes too. I remember personally being very confused about it when my brother died when I was 25. I mean, he's in heaven with Jesus. That's the best thing of all. So is it right to, should I feel sad? Is it wrong that I feel the way I do? But thankfully, wise people around me had a right view of death. And I was helped to to understand what Jesus models here, that it's right to grieve and to cry. It's not just okay, it's right. It's healthy to mourn, to grieve, to cry at death. It is unhealthy and unnatural to act like death is nothing. If the resurrection and the life stands at a grave and he weeps, then so should we. So when someone you love dies, give yourself time to grieve. How long? As long as it takes. Don't bottle it up. And when Christians you know suffer brutal bereavement, don't crush them with hope. What I mean by that is it's it's good and right to point our Christian brothers and sisters to Christ and to remind them of the glorious promises of the Bible. Romans 8 and, and Psalm 23 and they'll need you to point them to the promises of the Bible because when grief crushes in, it's, it's hard to, to go there yourself. So you need friends to pray for you. You need friends to read the Bible to you. But they also need you to grieve with them and to love them. Don't make hope and a sort of unbearable burden that is chained around their neck that they have to live up to. Allow people to cry and grieve. I was chatting about this uh, with someone and they said they'll always remember um, what their mum said uh, when a good friend of hers suffered a, a terrible um, death of a loved one, a very sudden death. And she said, I'm going around to cry with them. Going around to cry with them. That's absolutely right. You know, Romans 12 in the Bible doesn't say, it says uh, mourn with those who mourn. It doesn't say, tell those who mourn not to worry, death's nothing because of Jesus to so cheer up doesn't say that. It says mourn with those who mourn. Finally, Jesus raised Lazarus because he is the resurrection and the life. Okay, so uh, Jesus cares about people and Jesus is offended by death and hates the pain it causes. Well, you know, give him a tick. He's a good moral teacher. That's what you expect. But what a good moral teacher should not do is what Jesus does in verses 25 to 26, which is to walk up to a grieving family and say, forget the belief and culture that you grew up in and put your trust in me because I'm the answer to death. Good moral teachers don't do that. Nor do good moral teachers do what Jesus does next in verse 38. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone. He said, but Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor. He's been there for four days. Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. Good moral teachers do not go to the graveside and say, dig up the corpse and open the coffin. You don't do that. 
But Jesus has an authority, and so a couple of uh, guys come forward. Uh, they pluck up the courage. They cover their faces, I imagine, because um, of the stench. Or as the old translation of verse 39 puts it, but Lord, he stinketh. Uh, and they heave the great stone that stealed the, the, the tomb, and they step back, and everybody's looking at Jesus at this point. When he'd said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth round his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Some commentators have pointed out, Jesus probably said Lazarus come out, because if he just said come out, every single dead body on the earth would have come back. That is how powerful Jesus is. Can you imagine being here for this? Four days in a hot climate. I know what it's like when you leave out a bowl of fruit on holiday overnight and it's, oh my goodness. Four days, a dead body. And the grave is opened. And rotting flesh is reconstituted. And Lazarus shuffles out. Can you imagine being Mary and Martha or the people who've come around to mourn Imagine being Lazarus. I mean, seriously, it must have been incredible. But Jesus Christ has the power to release Lazarus from death. Death has got Lazarus and death is doing its job decaying him. And Jesus says, I'll have that one back. Thank you very much. And when death swallowed Jesus himself on the cross, couldn't hold him either. Three days later, he rose triumphant from the grave, never to die again. He has defeated death. Jesus has the power over death. He's burst out of the grave himself. It cannot hold him. He has lived, he has died, and he has never died again, having come back to life. That's why we listen to him. He has defeated death. And so now there is hope. As followers of Jesus, we know... That while we live, we live in a realm of death and death is horrible and it is miserable. But it is not the final word for those who trust in him. I went in one sense to probably the grimmest funeral imaginable a couple of months ago. A friend whose teenage son, after all sorts of struggles, took his own life. That is about as dark as it can get. And there was, rightfully, there was... There was a lot of grief and there were a lot of tears as uh, the family and friends gathered to mourn Harry. But it was not a hopeless funeral because Harry trusted in Jesus Christ. And so through all the tears and through all the agonizing heartbreak, there was this steady beat of hope, this light shining through the clouds that one day, The Jesus who said to Lazarus, come out, will say to Harry, come out, it's time for you to join me in eternal life. And that changes everything. Everything. Death is life's ultimate statistic. George Bernard Shaw put it best, one out of every one people will die. What can we do in the face of death? If you trust in Jesus, you don't have to distract yourself with crass jokes or deceive yourself with sentimentality and empty phrases. You don't have to drown it out with busyness or booze. We have a better hope. 
In Jesus Christ, we have the comfort we need, the comfort of a God who knows what it is to comfort the bereaved, who knows what it is to die himself, who has wept over death and who sees into your heart and understands what you need as you go through tragedy. But Jesus can do much more than just put a comforting arm around your shoulder as you die. If you trust in him, he can carry you through death and out the other side to eternal life. See, all of us one day have to go through that door. Every single person here has to go through that door. The only question is, who will you trust as you go through and where will it lead? There is only one man who's lived and died and lived again and is still alive. And he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Put your trust in me as you face death. So what? So what for us? Well, firstly, grieve properly and comfort the grieving wisely and well. The Bible is real. Our culture is confused. Learn from Jesus Christ and comfort those who are bereaved well and wisely. But secondly, and I guess more than that, I want to say to us tonight, live as people of hope. Live today as people of hope because if you trust Jesus, you know he's got the big thing sorted. Your death is dealt with. Now that should change uh, hope for you uh, when the, the strange lump starts to concern the doctor and they say, I think you need to go to have this tested. The terrifying car crash. Jesus has got it. He is the resurrection and the life. You're safe with him. Hope for others. When you hear of the death of Christians you know and love, cry, grieve and mourn, but never forget it's not the worst thing that can happen to them. And ultimately, ultimately if they trust in Jesus, then they will never die forever. One day they'll be called out of the grave and one day they will live with him. Hope for us, hope for others. And hope for the world. If you trust in Jesus Christ, you know the only answer to the grave. The only answer to the grave. Share that hope with others. Our culture might try to deny it, but death has a way of pushing through. And people need that hope. Share with them the glorious truth of the gospel that in Jesus Christ is resurrection and life everlasting. Trust in the one who has the audacity to say, I am the resurrection and the life. And trust in the one who has the power to say to Lazarus in history and to you in the future, all right, enough. It's time for you to come out. It's time for you to live forever. If you trust in him, one day you'll hear him call your name. And one day you'll live forever. Our Father God, we thank you that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. We thank you that while death is horrible, while death is brutal, 
death does not have power over Jesus. He has triumphed over the grave. And thank you that if we put our trust in him, already we share his life. And that life will carry us safely through death. Help us, Father, to live with that hope and to share that hope widely. And our Father, we pray that we would be people who are marked out as those who are different because we know that whatever happens to us in this life, whatever we face, death need hold no fear. Help us to trust that the resurrection and the life is is true. That the one who died and rose again is one in whom we can trust. Amen.